Great. As we're going through Colossians, we're going through the book of Colossians, and I want to just set up what we're going to talk about today because it is a kitchen table talk. It is what it would be called the pater familias. So this means father of the family, the patriarch, if you will, in the Roman household would be the one who would call the shots. It would be his job to oversee the wife and the kids and the slaves and all of the aspects of the household. And so there is structure and there are roles of leadership going on in the Roman household. And this is the audience that are reading the book of Colossians. They're living in the Roman Empire. And yet, as we're going through Colossians, we've come to a place where Paul's starting to talk about what this looks like to live out this rooted life. What does it look like to take off your old garments that doesn't, don't look like Jesus and put on clothes that look like Jesus? That's, that's the, the analogy he's using. And in the midst of it, there are some parallel passages in Ephesians, another book that Paul writes to the book of the church of Ephesus, as well as this book, the Colossians to Colossae, where there's a lot of crossover. And so our passage this morning actually crosses over dramatically with Ephesians 5 and the beginning of Ephesians 6. And so Paul's got some things to say, and he makes this list like many other speakers of his day, philosophers and Stoics and other people would say, these are the things that you need to do if you're a father or if you're a husband or a wife or a child or a slave. And so those five things are addressed in this passage today. Now, in order to set up this passage, I want to bring in a short video from the Bible Project guys. And this is uh, about the book of Philemon. Why do I bring it in now? Well, because Philemon was also delivered as a letter to a man named Philemon, who was housing one of the churches in Colossae. And so Paul writes this little letter to Philemon, and it is about this runaway slave. And you'll see the video here in a second to like kind of explain, but this also sets up the fact that this head of the household, it's still a role that's played in culture, but Jesus begins to level the playing field in a dramatic way. And the way that our relationships work in the kingdom of God look very different than, well, let's say just normal Roman or normal American culture. So let's take a look at the video. Paul's letter to Philemon. It was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments, and it's actually his shortest letter in the New Testament, but don't let its size trick you. It's actually one of the most explosive things that Paul ever wrote. Here's the backstory that we can piece together from details within the letter. Philemon was a well-to-do Roman citizen from Colossae who likely met Paul during his mission in Ephesus and he became a follower of Jesus. Then later, when Paul's co-worker Epaphras started a Jesus community in Colossae, Philemon became a leader of a church that met in his house. Now, Philemon, like all household patriarchs in the Roman world, owned slaves, one of whom was named Onesimus. And at some point, these two had a serious conflict. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was theft or maybe he cheated him. We don't exactly know. But afterwards, Onesimus ran away. 
Eventually, Onesimus came to Paul in prison, likely to appeal for help. And in the process, he became a follower of Jesus and then a beloved assistant of Paul. And so Paul finds himself in a very difficult and delicate situation as he writes this letter. He's going to ask Philemon not just to forgive Onesimus and receive him back, but to embrace him as a brother in the Messiah and no longer as a slave. Here's how he does it. Paul opens with a prayer, first praising Philemon and thanking God for the love and faithfulness he's shown to Jesus, to his people. And he then paves the way for his request with this line. I pray that the partnership that springs from your faith may effectively lead you to recognize all the good things that work in us, leading us into the Messiah. Now, a key word here is partnership, or in Greek, koinonia. It means sharing or mutual participation. It's when two or more people receive something together and share in it, becoming partners. Paul's saying that faithfulness to Jesus means recognizing that all of his followers are equal partners who share together in the gift of God's love and grace. And for Paul, this experience of koinonia among Jesus' followers, it's not just an idea that you think about, it's something that you do in your relationships. Which moves Paul onto his request. He finally brings up Onesimus. He says that he's become Paul's child in prison meaning that Paul led Onesimus to dedicate his life and allegiance to Jesus. And so Paul and Onesimus are now family members in the Messiah. He's been serving Paul faithfully in prison. And even though Paul wants to keep him around, he knows that this unresolved conflict with Philemon has to be reconciled if they say that they're followers of Jesus. Which moves Paul on to his bold request that Philemon receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother in the Lord. Now, this is a really tall order. Under Roman law, Philemon had every legal right to have Onesimus punished or put in prison. And Paul's not only asking him to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome back his former slave into Colossae as a social equal, as a family member. This is way more than kindness. This is unheard of. It's freeing a slave and then treating them like a family member. It upsets the status quo of the Roman social order. Why should Philemon do such a thing? And here Paul pulls a brilliant move. He recalls that key word from the opening prayer. He says, if you're truly a partner with me, it's that Greek word koinonia again, then welcome Onesimus as if he were me. And if he's wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to me and I will repay it. So in this request, we see the heart of Paul's gospel message being acted out. It's first of all about reconciliation. It's just like he told the Corinthians. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. He will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He will pay the cost so that he can be reconciled to Philemon. But Paul's message was about more than just a legal transaction. It's also about koinonia. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul are all equals before God. They all share the same need for forgiveness. And so the ground is level before the cross, which means that Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're family members. They're brothers in the Messiah. Or as Paul told Philemon and the whole church of Colossae, 
In God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish or circumcised or uncircumcised or foreigners or uncivilized or slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all people. Okay. That is a quick That is a quick way through Philemon although it is a pretty short read. I would encourage you to read that tonight before you go to bed. It won't take you very minute, many minutes but at the cross there is a leveling that happens. And uh, Galatians 3, another book uh, that Paul writes, says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized in Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. This kind of talks about our clothing metaphor that we have in Colossians 3 going here. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there is this leveling of the playing field. And oftentimes, I believe that the most powerful verse that, that kind of speaks to this is right there in Ephesians 5, coming into the parallel passage with our passage we're going to look at. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is this mutual submission at the cross that whether we are the boss or the employee, we're the father or mother and the child, we're the husband and wife, that there is a beautiful relationship that Jesus is calling us into, and it looks a little bit different than the world. I have some help this morning. So I'm going to invite Vicki Zancanella up to tell, tell us. That's right. She's mostly famous around here. Talk about this because this household list goes wives, husbands, children, fathers, and slaves and masters. So you get to lead us off. Uh, all right. Well, before we dive in to Colossians 3.18, I just want to acknowledge first of these verses that we're going to look at today together. Um, they're ones that can elicit a variety of reactions and both men and women and children and parents. And so as we look at these, some of you may cringe. The hair on the back of your neck might stand up. You may get a knot in your stomach, or you may just breathe a sigh of relief. So depending on your experience in the church and in family relationships, these verses may evoke emotions from past spiritual, emotional, or possibly even physical abuse that you have either witnessed or been a part of. And so I just wanna say right now, to lay it out there, I'm right there with you. I've experienced both the negative and the positive side of what these relationships look like as they've been lived out. And so if you find yourself needing someone to walk you through healing or a deeper understanding of these verses, just know that our church leadership and your brothers and sisters here in Christ are here to walk with you wherever you're at in this journey. And so I just wanted to say that as we dive into family relationships and, and what that looks like under Christ in this new covenant that he's brought. So I got past this hot potato first. I'm not going to hold on to it very long and pass it off to someone else here in just a few minutes. So, um, all right, let's look at Colossians 3.18. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
So as with all Bible verses, context is key to understanding the meaning and application of this verse. So at first, if you hear those words, wives submit, whether you're a husband or a wife, you may feel like it speaks to some type of inequality, which is contrary to the rest of the new covenant and everything that Jesus brought and that Paul speaks to in these letters. Um, just as Andrew uh, referenced Galatians 3, uh, 26 through 28, that there is, uh, we're all one in Christ, right? We're all equal. But on the same time, God has established a leadership structure in his kingdom, in the church and in the home. And Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians eleven three, which says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So here we have this order of authority. We have God, Christ, man, and woman. But you may say, wait a minute, if God is the head of Christ, I thought Christ and God are one, they're equal. Yes, they are, but in authority and in submission, God the Father is first, and Christ submit himself to God. We see this with Jesus throughout the Gospels, that he continues to submit his will to the Father's will, even to the cross. And so in God's, this hierarchy of authority, it doesn't mean that Christ was less than God. And yet, even from creation, when you look at the relationship of man and woman, Adam and Eve, they were created as two parts of a whole, and yet they had different roles to fill. And so, as we are one in Christ, we need to remember that our worth is not determined by our role. And our role does not determine our worth. And I think if you keep that in mind as you read these, there will be a new view of which maybe that you take pieces of this today. And so I don't know about you, but the idea that my worth isn't determined by my role brings a sense of freedom. And it brings a sense, instead of a burden, it's now an honor as we submit ourselves to Christ first and fill our role. All right, so first part of this verse says, wives, submit to your husbands. That word submit. In the Greek, it's the verb hopotasso, which means to place or rank under or to subject oneself to. In the military sense, the term meant to arrange in a military fashion under the command of a leader. So very, think of the hierarchy in the military um, and knowing kind of your place so that you could accomplish your mission. In a non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility, and of carrying a burden. And so this verse is instructing wives to voluntarily place themselves under their husband's position of authority to make the choice to submit in cooperation 
And so, wives, we know that we can choose to be difficult and stubborn, unruly, wanting to take control and and make things happen. And yet, I encourage us as we look at this to focus on what God has asked you to do and what your role is and how you can then instead encourage and support and relinquish that control. Man, it is really easy to submit when you have a husband who loves you like Christ loves the church and lays down his life for you. When you know that he has your best interest in mind and you can trust those choices, it makes it much easier to submit. But wives, I just want to warn you to be careful to not make your submission contingent on if your husband is loving you well. Even if he hasn't fulfilled his role well, we are called to submit and respect his role and his authority placed on him, and God will work things out with him. A wife on her own cannot make a marriage work, and a marriage doesn't work well when only the husband is trying. It takes both in partnership. So when we focus on our role together, we make a powerful team, and then that invites peace to reign in our home. Looking at the second part of this verse, as is fitting in the Lord, that's our motivation. Our motivation to submit and follow this instruction. If you want to do what's right before God in your life and in your own heart, then part of that is submitting to your husband in order to please the Lord, not to please your husband. So it's important to note also that in all of this, the ultimate authority is the Lord's. We submit to him. And this is not calling a wife to be submissive in a marriage that is asking her to fulfill a request that's outside of what the Lord would want. And I think that's a, that's a hard struggle in a place that many women are put into. Um, and I just want to say, it's tough. Um, but I want you to make sure that you're submitting to the Lord. So the fact is that we live in a fallen world and no relationship, no marriage will be perfect. But couples who submit themselves to Christ first can partner together instead of being pit- pitted against one another. And that in that, when they put their Savior first, we seek one another out of the love that God has given us. And as Jesus followers, when we can focus on being more Christ-like in our own role, it results in households that radiate the love between Christ and his church. And when our relationships reflect Christ and his church, what an example that is to a fallen world that is looking for answers for these broken relationships. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would change us from the inside out and that we may reflect your peace and love to those who don't know you. All right, and I'm going to pass this hot potato on. Great. So... 
All, all the ancient moralists would have said, husbands obey your, or wives obey your husbands. Paul is making a radical statement by saying voluntarily submit yourself to each other like this. He is absolutely rocking their world. This is Phil Knock, and he's going to talk a little bit about Colossians 3.19. All right, Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, here we go. So the word husband in English comes from the Old Norse, and it means man of the house. So is there any man of the house out there today? All right, listen up. This portion's for you guys. All right, let's look at the parallel passage in Ephesians 5.25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as husbands, we have a role model, which is Christ and how he relates with the church. So I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's a tough act to follow. So in order to lead, we can't put ourselves first because Christ gave himself up for his church. In order to lead, we must listen. In order to be strong, we must humble ourselves. In order to be first, we have to put ourselves last. In order to love as Christ loved, we have to um, choose the position of Christ. Christ humbled himself. He lowered himself. He was born in a manger. He was a lowly carpenter. He chose to be humbled, humiliated, and tortured, and he died for his church. Christ is our example of how we should love our wives. So we must love our wives. Of course, the word love in Greek had four words. There was the word um, storge, which was fr uh, family love, and then there was phileia love, which was friendship, and then eros, which was physical love, and then agape, which is sac sacrificial love. So can you guys guess which one they used in the passage? No, it wasn't Eros, sorry. <laughs> no, it was agape. So sacrificial love. So I ask you a question today. Who is in the way of you loving your wife? Nobody but yourself, myself, right? So we have this opportunity to... Um, not look at our wife, how she spends her money, how she treats me, how she talks to me, how she disrespects me, how she gossips with her friends about me, you know, how she's disappointed me. Honestly, that doesn't get you guys off the hook. So I would say, like Pastor Josh said uh, a few years back after the fire, he was preaching here, he said, loving is losing. Loving is sacrificing. Loving is willing to be going into the fiery furnace and coming out changed. So, Spirit of God, come convict us of our self-love so that we can love our wives. Turn our self-love into wife-love. Uh, Ephesians 5.33 says that we should love our wives just as much as we love ourselves. So we need to take the time to learn about our wives. So revisit, have that talk about the five love languages. 
Um, maybe look up Brene Brown's teaching on trust and braving trust. Maybe look at the seven love styles that they've developed. Um, have that conversation. So husbands, we need to love who? We need to love our wives, right? So stop thinking about how great a husband you would be for such and such, that other woman. And start thinking how you can be a great husband for your covenant wife. God has put you in covenant with that woman for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter how you relate with other women. All that matters is how you relate with your wife. This goes against the rages of culture, which say, you know, we need to find the ideal partner, someone we're compatible with, somebody who is harmonious with us. So for younger men out there, I, I warn you, if that is your ideal of marriage, you're in for a big surprise. So if, you're war if your marriage is difficult, that's okay. That's the refinement that God brings to us to change us, to make us a better person. So now we come to the anti-directive. It says, do not be harsh with her. So this takes some understanding. I asked my wife about this and she said, quote, the typical responsibilities of the average wife comes with some vulnerabilities. She did the math. I've been pregnant for three and a half years, headaches, other aches, and throwing up multiple times a day I gained and lost 30 to 55 pounds with hormone production and then free fall of hormone loss, hair loss, memory fog, and cavities. Add into that nursing just another 50 months. That's a total of seven and a half solid years. We need to live with our wives in an understanding way. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it says that we need to live with understanding, otherwise our prayers will be hindered. So don't be ignorant about what your wife is going through. So the consequences of that is to not be harsh with them, but to treat them with understanding. If we don't, we will, our prayers will be hindered. So if you don't know if you're being harsh with your wife, guess what? You can ask her. Ask her, how am I loving you? How am I doing with that? How am I not loving you? How am I being harsh with you? How is it that I can treat you with love and respect and honor and with understanding? Have that conversation and then maybe revisit some of those topics about love language, love styles, braving trust. Are you willing to have that conversation with your wives? Thank you. Thank you, Phil. This is Natalie Harness. She's going to take us through this next verse. But, you know, I'm here to tell you that the ancients, the ancient instructions that are not in the Bible would talk about ruling over your wife. Paul replaces ruling with loving. This is a radical departure from the way that the world does life. Very true. <laughs> a lot of old garments being taken off and new things being put on. That's good. Um, yeah, so I get to have fun with Colossians 3.20. And I'm going to keep it simple because 
for children, we must keep it simple. And we are all children of God, yes? All right. Uh, well, let's start with that, actually. Galatians uh, 6, or 3, 26 through 27 was read earlier, and it talked about um, all of us through Christ being children of God. So I just want to clear the air. If you believe that, if you can say that with your mouth, let's say it on the count of three, I am a child of God. One, two, three. I am a child of God. Yes, you are. Uh, let's say it one more time. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, you are. All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, I think we can more appropriately move into this verse. So Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I think this verse is pretty self-explanatory, honestly. I read it, I've read it multiple times as a child. Um, but the easiest way that I would really explain it is how... No, I could make I could I could have made a list honestly of how many ways you could obey your parents more. There's I mean all the parents are like yes, amen, hallelujah. Um, but really, truly, how do you honor and obey your parents when you don't fully understand what that looks like? How do you honor and obey your parents when you don't see everything out in front of you? Uh, same for us as children of God. How do we honor God and obey God when we don't see the whole picture? really difficult. But I'd submit to you that that's more so why we need to obey our parents. That's more so why we need to honor our parents because they see the bigger picture. They've had more life experience. So I'm speaking a lot to our junior high and high school and college students, but even to our um, older generation who are guiding us and leading us as parents, submitting to your parents because they've had more experience, submitting yourself to God, which we've talked a lot about submitting to God because he sees the bigger picture. He sees more, and that's why we honor him. That's why we obey him, because he sees it all. So I'd like to also point out, we mentioned we are children of God through who? Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, amen. <laughs> we are children of God through Jesus Christ. So why not look at his example? Why not look at his example and what it looks like to walk in obedience and honoring our father? So I'm going to go to John 5.30, which there's a lot you could talk about for this whole section where it's talking about uh, authority of the son. Um, and it's literally the last verse of this section. It says, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. That's NIV. New King James Version says to please the one, my father, the one who sent me, my father who sent me. I'm giving you a lot of application and this is the, I, I could have made a list like I said, but this is the simplest application I can give you. Jesus consistently is submitting himself to Jesus as Vicky said earlier, or submitting himself to God. The easiest way we can walk in honor and obedience to our parents is submitting ourselves to God and asking him, what is your will? How, how do I honor my parents? Because like we said, there could, there's a million things you could do, but each of us are at different seasons. Junior hires are still very much so relying on our parents. College students are like asking questions, but trying also to step out on our own. Parents out there are like, I'm guiding my kid. What do I do with my parents? All these questions. We're all in different seasons of life. So how, 
How do we do that? Listen to God. Ask him. Submit yourself to him. Start your day on your knees as a child, crying out, Abba, Father, I need you. I need your help. Help me to honor my parents. So make a list. I say make a list and then submit it to God. What, what does it look like to honor my parents in this season? Thank you so much. Thanks, Natalie. You know, minors were expected in the Roman culture to obey their parents under Roman law, and adult children living in the same home had the same expectation. But adult children who were living outside the home were directed to honor their father and mother. And we didn't talk a lot about that this morning, but that's oftentimes the most challenging. How do I honor my father and mother as they get older and try to figure out what does that look like? Or for those of us in my life stage, what does it look like to be a father to adult children, which deserves its own sermon at some point? Because it is challenging, and none of y'all told me how challenging that would be. So this is Jesse Sherba, and uh, he's going to look at this next verse. I always love that last verse as a parent, because it was really good to tell my kids, obey me. But it's followed up, isn't it? Two, two verses up here. If we mash them together, we get this. Parents, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So here's the deal. We can parent our children in such a way that we provoke them to anger and discouragement. This can be, we can provoke behavior, we can provoke sentiments. I give myself two tests oftentimes when I'm, when I'm parenting or disciplining my kiddos. I'll give you one now and one at the end. Oftentimes before I discipline them, I reflect, have I done something to provoke this behavior? This may or may not be a real example, but let's say it's Saturday morning and dad's grumpy all morning. What happens with your kids come Saturday afternoon? They're grumpy with each other. So I need to pause, I need to reflect, and I need to take some ownership there. Is there, some, there's, is there something I did to provoke this behavior? We're not talking about letting anybody off the hook, but ownership. All right, I'm going to roll through a list of seven ways parents can unfairly provoke their children. I'm going to go fast, because this could be a two-month sermon series in, in five minutes. But good news is, internet has all this information. You can go look it up, or you can come talk to us if you want. Goodness instead of holiness. Parenting the child's behavior instead of their heart. This will eventually provoke your children to anger and discouragement because they're going to see that we're calling them to a standard of behavior that's impossible without a transformation of the heart. If something resonates with you up here, make, make note of it. Pause for a second. Take some time this week to reflect on it because we're going to go quick through this list. Hypocrisy instead of authenticity. When we hold ourselves to one standard but we hold our children to another. Our children are going to recognize there's a contrast between our actions and the standard the Bible calls us to. We need to live before our children where we can not only say, do what I say, but do what I do. 
Doubt instead of confidence. Parents can live with crippling fear that God's not going to save their kids. And that fear has consequences. Our children may grow angry and discouraged because they see their parents professing a faith in a God who is sovereign and good, but then acting as if God is neither one. Fear instead of boldness. It is wise parenting to protect your children by holding back evil influences until your children are mature and developed. It's wise, but it's unwise parenting to shelter our children in such a way that they never see and experience sin and its ugly consequences. Fear-based parenting provokes your children because we create a fictional world, a bubble that does not reflect reality. Anger instead of patience. Oh my, parents, we use anger sometimes, or the threat of anger, as a means of correction and punishment. Discipline is not delivered with calmness and self-control. A parent's anger will lead to a child's anger. All right, unengaged instead of intentional. There are unengaged parents, there are active parents, and there are intentional parents. It is easy to be unengaged or active and have little real relationship with your children. Intentional parents deliberately build friendships with their children, seeking their hearts and establishing a lasting relationship that allows for intimacy. And then pride instead of humility. Parental pride manifests itself in all different ways, but maybe never more so in the the unwillingness to ask your children for forgiveness. Pride convinces us that apologizing to our kiddos shows us that we're weak and it gives them power over us. We will inevitably sin against our children and we have to humbly seek their forgiveness. All right, test number two. When I'm disciplining or working with, redirecting or coaching my kiddos, would I be speaking to anyone else in this manner? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Is my tone of voice or the words that I'm choosing or maybe even how I put them together, is my body language, am I, am I communicating something in a way that I would never, I wouldn't talk to my coworker that way or my boss or someone I respect and love, but, but maybe I am to my kiddos. The point is kindness matters. Kindness matters. There's a saying, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. It's an awful saying. It is so entitled and selfish. The, The saying really should be, if you can't say anything kind, then you're not trying hard enough. You're not off the hook. But I'll leave you with, with this quote from Mother Teresa. If you want to change the world, go home. And love your family. That list got me. I don't know about you. If you're a parent, whew. Last part of this family discussion. This is not the boss you want to be. And this is not the boss that you want. 
Why? Because he doesn't reflect the kingdom. And if you've seen the office, you know what I'm saying. And yet here in this conversation about slaves and masters, you might say, Andrew, why are we even looking at this? Why would Paul even, why would he talk about slaves and masters? Why isn't he banning slavery altogether? Well, we saw in the overview of Philemon, he's well on his way to undermining slavery as being something that is, people are not possessions, right? So there is a context in the Roman world. So while Paul would probably love to get, a, get away from it completely, he's saying in the context, let's make it look like the kingdom. Let's redefine these relationships. And you might say, well, I don't have any slaves. I don't know any slaves. Why would we need to talk about this? Well, if you work at a job, how many of you work at a job? Raise your hand. Sometimes your job feels like slavery. And the truth is that slaves in the first century were often they were like family members. If you can think of maybe a, a, a household employee that you might have. We had nannies for years, and they were part of our family. I mean, we loved our nannies just as if they were an extension of the family, and we paid them money in order to make sure our kids were safe and nurtured and loved. And so you know that family has been redefined in this day and age that sometimes your closest family aren't even related to you. Genetically, they're not related, but there is a deep love that we can have for one another. And there's this beautiful context here of what it looks like to live the kingdom at work. Now, we're going to only spend a couple minutes on this. This deserves another longer treatment. And we've done, Michael and Catherine Redmond did a sermon series about work and the kingdom a few years ago. Here's what this, this verse says in verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Before this passage started, it, Paul reminds us, whatever you do, do it for God. Do it as if you're working for God. And we're going to see it again here. He's going to repeat that in whatever the things you are in your work. What if you made Jesus your boss and your boss was second in line to Jesus? And slaves oftentimes in the first century were seen as lazy, that was kind of the knock on slaves because there were, they weren't really stakeholders, right? It's not like they're shareholders and they're going to be uh, more successful if the household goes well. They can just, you know, take it easy. I'm always amazed at when I go into workplaces and I see somebody behind the counter doing this. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're, they're paying you to, to look at the look, Facebook. What? And, and I think of this verse every single time. Because when you're on the clock, you're supposed to be working. When you're not working and you're on the clock, you're taking advantage of your boss. You are, you are not, it's not about what you can get away with. It's about how you serve and what you do. And so in this case, workers, that's most all of us, do we only work hard when the boss is looking or do we look for any opportunity to take a longer lunch or stretch that out or ha have a reason why we're not being productive? Next verse, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart 
as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Do you know that slaves weren't in line for an inheritance in the Roman Empire? And yet, Paul's saying, hey, this is a different kind of work. There is a heavenly reward system here that's very real, and I got your back. I see what you're doing. Even when your boss doesn't see, I see what's happening. Integrity is oftentimes explained as what you do when no one else is watching. Are you actually living out the things that you say that you believe, or are you a hypocrite? So there's this beautiful promise of saying, hey, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. This is literally like serve Jesus. This little verb. Just serve Jesus. Don't let your boss's failings or behavior get in the way of you serving Jesus. Because anyone, verse 25, who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. In other words, hey, the eyes of the Lord are watching you and if you are slacking, if you are dishonoring your boss, it's, there's going to be rewards handed out. Now, don't you worry. Your boss is not off the hook. Because those of us who are bosses, how many people oversee other people in a work context in some way? Raise your hand. You're a manager, you're a boss, you're an owner. Yep, this is for us. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master, master in heaven. Just as we submit ourselves to Jesus, we must find ways to live out the command of Jesus to love one another with those who have been entrusted to our care. I don't know how many times growing up in low-end jobs, I felt so taken advantage of by my boss. I felt like they just loaded me down with stuff and they didn't see me for who I was. We all want to be seen and known and loved. And as a supervisor and a leader of people, I want clear outcomes and a clear job description. I want people to know what's expected of them. That's fair and right. I want to make sure that the values of this organization or your organization are clear so that they understand why, what they're going after and what the, the rails on the road to the future look like. And I want to be clear about vision and how they matter to what we're doing here or in your business or in your department. One of the best ways that we get to show what Jesus looks like is by holding our authority with humility. This is what you heard from Jesse. This is what you heard from Phil. You heard that humility in Vicki as she talked about that voluntary submission. And Natalie talking about submitting ourselves to our Father, just as Jesus did. So this is the kitchen table talk for today. And as we're moving through Colossians here, we'll land on prayer and thanksgiving for the next few weeks. And they're beautiful passages. And one of my favorite 
verses I get to share next week. I'm so excited. I've been counting down the weeks to get to talk about Colossians 4.2. But I want to challenge you. You have been challenged today by myself and by my friends. And I believe that God highlighted something. So for you, by a show of hands, how many of it was in the wives category? Raise your hand. That was what stood out to you. Okay? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you in the husband's category? That was like the thing that stood out to you. Okay, great. How about the children category? Anybody out there? Okay, there's some children's, all young and old. Good job, good job, good job. How about the father category? What about bosses and workers? Anybody out there? I want God's word to be alive to us. And I don't want you to go away forgetting what you looked at, looked like as you looked in the mirror of God's word today. I'm so thankful for my friends who shared with me today. They are wise, they're sensitive, they are humble, and they live these things out. And if you want to come up and chat with any of them, I'm sure that they would love to talk to you or pray for you. But if you'd stand, I want to close this up today. I'm so thankful that we have this new relationship at the foot of the cross, which has an equality and beauty to it. And yet I want to steward my own leadership and my own role well, better. And I hope that I never lose my sensitivity for what God is asking me to do. Because I believe that as I walk in alignment, as you walk in alignment with what the Holy Spirit wants for you, that you'll be submitting yourself to him, being filled with the Spirit, and then whatever you do, there will be this sweet aroma of Jesus about it. And so, Lord, in what stood out to us today from your word, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you that you were speaking through us and to us. I pray that you would powerfully work in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give us the power to live these things out. We don't have to work harder. We just have to submit more. And so help us to submit and surrender more. I surrender all to you this morning. And thank you for leading, guiding, and helping your church to look more and more like you, Jesus. So I pray a blessing on this body of Jesus Christ, this church meeting here and over the airwaves in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Prayer folks, if you'd come down forward, we're going to have an opportunity for you to get prayer. We'd love for you to do that. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.